Capital Market Insights from ICMA. Welcome to the ICMA podcast. I am Mushtaq Kapasi, Chief Representative, Asia Pacific. For ICMA, I'm based in Hong Kong. We've been running a mini-series of podcasts with leading economists in the market to offer their views on the global economic outlook, and in particular, implications for the international bond markets. Today, we are delighted and honored to have as our guest, Aditya Bave, U.S. and global economist for B of A Global Research. Aditya, welcome. Thank you. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you. So let's get right into it and start with G7, leading economies. How do you see the outlook for real growth and inflation in 2022 in the leading economies? And where is there possible divergence? Um, Sure. So starting with your second question first, in terms of the divergence, I think we see a a clear difference between the U.S. and um, the other developed markets. And I think that's really driven by the demand side of the economy. The U.S. had massive fiscal stimulus, both immediately after the pandemic, as well as Um, you know, in the latter part of 2020 and then early in 2021 as well. And that second round of stimulus is what really separated the U.S. from its other DM um, colleagues. And, you know, as a result of that, the U.S. economy has recovered much faster. And that has shown up in, you know, a very, very strong demand side of the economy, which has run into supply constraints. Now, the supply side is a little bit more global. So what's happened is, you know, there's been this huge surge in goods demand, largely driven by the U.S. And, you know, that that has been very difficult for suppliers to fill, both because of the pickup in demand itself and the, you know, the, the constraints related to the pandemic. You know, the story I'm happy to get into more details, but we're facing, you know, incredible supply constraints. And that's where all of the developed economies are, you know, much more similar. Now, in terms of what this means for the monetary policy outlook, I think um, there are some central banks that say inflation is inflation. And, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's demand or supply driven. We still need to act on it to be consistent with our mandate. And therefore, they are tightening quite aggressively. The Fed is in a different position where they're seeing both demand and supply-driven inflation. And so, um, you know, they have uh, started to, you know, signal that they're going to be tightening as well. Um, Looking a little bit ahead into the outlook, we are looking for seven Fed hikes this year, and we can get into that in more detail. That's a pretty aggressive forecast relative to the street, but we don't think it's actually a very radical forecast at all. Um, the other developed markets, uh, you know, if you look at the ECB, for example, we recently changed our call. We expect them to hike twice this year. But then we actually think that they'll stop at zero. The markets think, so they're negative 50 now, two hikes would take them to zero, and that's where we think they'll stop. Um, The markets are pricing another two hikes for next year. Okay, thanks. Indeed, you are a little bit aggressive on on the Fed. I am curious about that. And what are the factors that you're taking into consideration that uh, you feel um, either the market or other uh, um, economists are not taking into account? Right. So I talked a little bit about the strength of the demand side of the economy, how, you know, that's running into constrained supply and creating a huge amount of inflation. So if you look at, um, you know, 
price inflation measures, headline CPI, core CPI, headline BC, core BC, they all look very, very strong. Now, over the next several months, the year-over-year -year rates will roll over. That's inevitable because of the, you know, the, the, the way the base effects are working from last spring. But from our perspective, that's not the point. The point is not that you know, we'll, we'll drop off from, let's say, 7% headline CPI inflation. The point is that we'll still be well above the Fed's target. So where do we land in the medium term? And we think that landing point could be you know, much closer to 3% or higher than the Fed's 2% target, which would justify a, a more aggressive Fed. The other way to think about it is, um, you know, it's, the, the, there's this idea that there's the steady downtrend in global yields, terminal Fed funds, and therefore the Fed just isn't going to be able to hike. And I think that's basically right, but the last cycle was really, really different. And we've looked at this in a few different ways, but um, you know, one of them is uh, a, a machine learning algorithm that we run. And what we find is that you know, using just a broad um, you know, set of macroeconomic data for the US, the previous cycle just looks unusual. <laughs> you know, it was just a very long, very soft recovery that justified a very slow hiking cycle. What we're going through now looks a lot more like the latter stages of the two expansions before the uh, financial crisis. In particular, you know, the 2004-06 period looks a lot like now. And we know that back then the Fed hiked 17 consecutive times by 25 basis points. So we're not calling for that. We're just saying they go seven straight times this year. And then next year, as they get closer to neutral, because there is a bit of a downtrend in global rates, um, you know, we think they slow down and they go once every quarter. Okay, thank you. So we haven't really talked about the pandemic except for talking about the reaction to it now. Okay. So to what extent does the pandemic play into your forecast or the market forecasts? And how might different, very much unpredictable, different scenarios as how the pandemic is going to play out? How would that affect um, Fed and uh, other central bank policy in your view? Look, I think at this stage, it's very difficult to forecast where the pandemic is heading. The general base case is that because of you know, both fatigue from the public and the fact that Omicron is very transmissible, but, you know, not that severe, we're probably going to transition into, uh, you know, the endemic phase of the pandemic rather than the, the endemic phase of COVID rather than the pandemic phase, right? Which means that, um, you know, very slowly we move back towards business as usual. Now, very slowly in some countries, much faster in other countries, the US, for example, even the more cautious states, they've been largely open for the last year or so. It's more a question of when people are willing to fully engage again in the economy. Whereas if you look at you know, some parts of Asia, for example, it's very different where government restrictions are much, much stricter. So even if people want to engage, they can't beyond a degree. But um, in terms of how things evolve, uh, the key is going to be a couple of things from the growth from the growth side. When do people re-engage in services? And here, it's going to be driven more by the upper income population that had 
forced savings during the pandemic. And, you know, we, we've looked into this. It's really that group that spends more on the stuff that was really shut down during COVID. Hmm. And um, so, you know, when will they start taking vacations again? When will business travel pick up again? That's the that's uh, one side of uh, things from the growth perspective. From the inflation perspective, uh, I would be looking for what happens with global supply chains. So if you know things reopen, if production picks up, if you know we're, we're able to put more ships on the you know in, in the ocean, that's going to take time. But eventually, um, you know that could hopefully ease supply constraints to a certain degree. Okay. So from your perspective as a professional economist, have there been any particularly surprising macroeconomic effects of the pandemic or any counterintuitive impacts of the pandemic? Um, I would say that we were very surprised by inflation and goods demand. So th th those are probably the two things. And let's dig a little bit more into that. Um, the initial view of the pandemic was Demand's going to collapse. We're going to go through a very deep recession. People were making an analogy to the uh, Great Depression, potentially. And it's just going to be very, very, it's going to be, a, you know, three or four very, very difficult years for the global economy. Instead, what happened is people very quickly, and I think we have the internet to thank for this, people very quickly, um, you know, pivoted their spending habits um, got better at shopping online. And, um, you know, just, they did, yes, they bought less services, but they used a lot of that money to buy goods, right? And that was very supportive for the economy. If you look globally, and particularly if you look at the US, demand for durable goods has just exploded, right? Um, from the inflation perspective, though, what that did was, we had about uh, you know, two or three decades at least of steadily falling or flat goods prices. And then suddenly you got the spike because um, you know, goods were in short supply. And even if they were being produced, they were getting stuck on ships, right? Um, you know, right. They're, they're stuck in shipping containers off the, the yeah. coasts of LA and Long Beach. We know the story. Um, so I think both the increase in inflation, which has prompted, you know, this, this very sharp pivot by central banks and um, the way in which growth has held up. I mean, you can, I, I think most people would agree at this point that uh, this downturn was not even as bad as the, the, the financial crisis. Right. Just to follow up on that, that's a very interesting point you made about inflation. To what extent do you look at inflation over the last couple of years and in the inflation story as a, as a goods demand story? And to what extent is it really a labor story, a wages story? Um, and how might that be different in different economies? Right, so I think it's both in the US. Um, and on top of that, I would add that the, uh, the, the more cyclical components of inflation like rents are also picking up now. So the story in the spring of last year was that you know, this is probably transitory. There's some, you know, clogging of supply chains. It'll sort itself out over the next six months. And then inflation will probably fall back to 2%, maybe even lower because demand is weak. But that's really not how it played out. Um, instead, supply chain uh, issues proved to be not transitory at all. They're looking very, very sticky. 
In the meantime, um, you know, demand-driven inflation picked up because um, the labor market is very strong and because the demand side of the economy is very strong, as we talked about earlier, all of that fiscal stimulus. And then, of course, what also happened because of the strength of the labor market is that wage inflation picked up a lot. Now, in the past, particularly in the previous cycle, there was a wedge between wage inflation and price inflation in the sense of wages picked up, prices didn't pick up as much, which was great for real wages. That doesn't quite seem to have happened so far. I mean, let's see what happens over the next several quarters if wages are able to outpace prices. But the same, you know, the same types of supply issues that you're seeing on um, the, the the product side, you're also seeing on the labor side, where it's a combination of pandemic-related distortions and just very, very strong demand. Um, labor supply is, is, is um, constrained and labor demand is very, very strong. That's the story for the US. And if you look at the rest of the world, they're facing the same, um, you know, price pressures, not quite as acute as the US. And perhaps largely driven by demand from the US. It's a little bit of an externality for the rest of the world, but you know, the labor markets are not nearly as tight. So wage inflation, for example, in Europe is, is, is very, very low. There's plenty of labor market slack, and that's a significant differentiating factor from the US. Interesting. Okay, great. Let's shift gears a little bit from the macroeconomic situation more to the capital markets, which ICMA covers directly. So what are the implications of the inflation prognosis of Fed and G7 monetary policy for the international bond market, let's say in the next 12 months? Right. So, I mean, I think in terms of what happens with front-end rates, that's easier to figure out. I mean, it'll just be a function of where monetary policy heads. And we can talk about that really quickly. I told you about our Fed forecasts. I told you about our um, euro area forecasts. But the other central banks, I would say, you know, most of them are probably going to be able to hike a bit, but less than the Fed. There are some exceptions, of course, like New Zealand. We, we, we can get into that. They have a slightly different mandate. Um, but in terms of long, you know, longer, um, longer term bond yields, it's going to be very interesting. There's a view out there that the economy can't handle yields above you know, 225 or so for, for the tenure. If that view is correct, then the Fed probably isn't going to hike as much as we're forecasting. We have 11. Sorry, what, what do you mean? What do you mean by can't handle? What does that mean? Um, I think it's a function of, look, rates keep going lower, lower, lower if, mm. if, if, if bond yields, and this is not my personal view, I'm just saying this is a view I've heard from clients, that sure. if, if the tenure goes above 225, 250, um, you know, the, the, there's going to be a disaster in equities and risk assets more broadly, Understand. Um, mortgage rates are going to spike, and um, right. so that, that's what I mean by the economy is not going to be able to handle it. Um, I'm not quite convinced on that. I mean, if we are in a slightly different paradigm, and again, I think this goes back to the idea that the last cycle was different. So after the financial crisis, that was that book, right? This time is different. And I think, yeah. um, you know, that that's probably true. We're not dealing with a slow and painful recovery from a banking and real estate crisis this time around. So we could see slightly higher yields. It wouldn't shock me if the 10-year got to 3%. In which case, um, for our 
Fed forecasts, the yield curve doesn't even need to invert. Or if it does invert, that inversion is going to be relatively modest. Whereas if the other view is right and tens can't go above two to 25, then our Fed forecast is probably wrong because um, I don't know that level of inversion would be viewed as healthy by both the Fed and um, you know, financial markets. Okay, so we've covered G7, most developed markets. I know Asia does have developed markets as well, but let's cover Asia in, in general. Do you have an overall view of the region, and I mean Asia Pacific, if not, which is completely understandable because it's completely fragmented and there are many different things going on right now, maybe you can touch upon some of the individual jurisdictions and some of the individual uh, central bank policies that you cover. Right. So more than half of the world's population is, is in Asia. So you know, I think it would be a little bit uh, pithy to say that um, I have an overall view on the region. Understood. But there, are some, um, the, the, there are some common factors that I think are quite interesting. Um, the first one is that Asia, in general, most countries have been quite conservative on COVID. So the next few months are going to be quite interesting. And potentially, um, you know, you could see another growth slowdown in, in the first half of this year, at least the first quarter. Now, what does that mean for the rest of the world, I think, is, is, is an interesting question. Um, there's... Presumably, if you get another round of strict restrictions and presumably if Omicron does kind of roll through the whole region the way it has in the West, then um, you would see some further disruption to supply chains. You could see more inflation in the rest of the world and even more pressure on, on central banks. In terms of the region itself, another thing that's interesting is that central banks have been quite cautious about hiking. They have managed to remain relatively dovish. And that is, I think, interesting in juxtaposition to what's happening in emerging Europe, as well as Latin America, where central banks have been under a lot of pressure to get ahead of the Fed. Whereas in Asia, they're quite happy to follow. And one theory on this, I'm not an expert on emerging markets, but one theory on this is that, um, you know, Asian central banks have a little bit more credibility because they have a better history of fighting inflation. So for the growth outlook for this year, we're broadly quite positive on Asia. We're a little bit concerned about the degree of policy tightening in China. And so we're below consensus on China, but besides China, you know, we think Asia could perform relatively well, in part because we're not as worried about central banks short-circuiting their economic recoveries. Okay. Now, the economic outlook for Asia seems fairly sanguine about that. But what about the credit situation? So in particular, I'm close to home here in Hong Kong. There have been concerns about the domestic credit situation in China, particularly in the high-yield sector also some regulatory risks with respect to different sectors. Um, in Asia, I think there is some concern about credit quality that's generally linked to COVID and, and the pandemic, and also the supply chain issues that you've talked about, which I think are, are very important as well. Do you personally expect a deterioration overall in credit quality in 2022, or is that going to be segmented by geography or sector? And um, if so, what are the implications? 
Right. So a couple of things to say on that. Starting with China, um, our view on China is that policy easing or reversal of policy tightening has been a little bit slower than expected. Uh, that's not to say that there wasn't a need for some tightening in, you know, especially in real estate, like you said, um, you know, there, there was a worry about uh, credit quality. The question is, was it overdone? And, you know, given the recent economic activity numbers that look quite soft still, there, there, there's a worry that indeed it was overdone. So for example, we have a 4.8% growth forecast for China over the next couple of years, which is softer than, uh, than, than consensus. So I mean, 2022 and uh, 2023. In terms of broader questions about credit quality, I think that's kind of the flip side of easier monetary policy, right? Hmm. Um, when monetary policy is very easy, then yeah, there's always going to be this concern. Um, I'm not an expert on you know, lending standards by, by Asian banks, so I won't comment on that. But in terms of monetary policy, which kind of drives the level of you know, borrowing rates overall, uh, I would still say probably this is better than the counterfactual of very, very fast tightening. I mean, the problem for the rest of the world, and this is something that you know, we flagged way back when, I think in April or May of 2020, is that developed markets, particularly the US, were always likely to recover from the pandemic a little bit quicker because we knew upfront that whenever a vaccine was developed, it was going to be available quicker in, in DM than EM. That's but right. at the same time, central banks were going to be under pressure to defend their currencies by moving ahead of the Fed. So you're hiking mm -hmm. earlier, even though your economic cycle is lagging, which means you really have a risk, as I said earlier, of short-circuiting your recovery. And the fact that mm -hmm. at least so far, Asian central banks haven't been under that kind of pressure, I think that's first order versus you know, maybe a relatively second order concern about credit. Okay. All right. So let's shift gears again. We're going to talk about sustainability a bit. This is a topic uh, close to home, a big theme uh, for ICMA and increasingly for the markets, but one that does sometimes lead to some confusion, uh, maybe even skepticism. What are your views on sustainability in the capital markets, especially in the context of the pandemic? Do you think we're likely to see structural changes in global policy and in the bond markets themselves? Or is it going to be more incremental evolution absorbing the various influences of sustainability from, from the market and from the real economy? Sure. Um, so in terms of sustainability, I'll say that um, our equity analysts have looked at this in, in, in a lot of detail. And what they find is that to a degree, ESG is a new term, but some of the stuff we look for when we look at how ESG friendly uh, a company is, is um, you know, things that we've always thought about, right? Like good governance, strong leadership, that kind of thing. Um, but they've also found that companies that do well in um, ESG ratings do also generate pretty solid returns. So it's not a trade-off necessarily between being ESG friendly and um, you know, being profitable. 
in terms of emerging markets, I think things get a little bit more interesting because if you look back at economic history, the way in which a lot of countries have developed is by following relatively environmentally unfriendly policies. And this is true for the West as well. And then, you know, once you are developed, then you can kind of clean up a little bit, um, a, li a mm. little bit more easily. But, uh, you know, to put things, you know, kind of in a very stark way, you first need to make sure that your population is fed and healthy and, you know, not living in poverty. And then you can think about the environment. So there is a bit of a trade-off between being more ESG friendly and, you know, basic economic development, getting people out of poverty in, in emerging markets. And I think that's something that uh, will be a challenge, perhaps, for, uh, for the ESG drive in EM. Understood. And I think sometimes that trade-off is underestimated, let me put it that way. Um, everyone, of course, wants right. to have everything that they, that they desire in, in life. Okay, final question for you. What else do you think participants in the bond market should look out for in 2022? Any risks or opportunities that might have been overlooked by market consensus? Um, yes. So, you know, the, the simple answer is COVID. We have no idea how things are going to play out. Um, but that's, that's kind of, there's not a whole lot to say on that. Um, I think there's a, um, the markets are overpricing the extent to which policy will converge between the US and Europe, or you know, the extent to which rates will move together. In our view, the Fed is going to be able to hike 11 times over the next couple of years. The ECB is going to be able to hike twice. The markets are pricing in about seven Fed hikes by the end of 2023 and for the ECB. So if we're right, then the implications for the differential between, let's just say, treasuries and boons are, um, you know, are, are, are quite strong. So that, that is something to watch for. Well, thanks very much. Extremely interesting. And I'm sure uh, something that our trader audience will be noting at the moment. <laughs> we'll really appreciate it. Um, we'll have to wrap up here, but we're most grateful for you sharing your insights with us. Of course. And thank you for taking the time. Great. And to our audience, thank you for taking the time to listen to this ICMA podcast. We welcome your feedback on this episode, as well as suggestions for other topics. Please also feel free to contact us anytime by email at apac at icmagroup.org. That's A-P-A-C at I-C-M-A-G-R-O-U-P dot O-R-G for any questions or ideas regarding our overall work in the Asia Pacific region. We wish you good health and an excellent day ahead. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening. For more ICMA podcasts and further information on capital markets, please visit our website, icmagroup.org.